Hey guys, I'm so excited to have you join me here. This is a new podcast series on the Everyday Grace podcast called You Can Sit With Us. So the whole idea behind this series is that there are ways in which the church has failed to be welcoming to some people who find themselves in the margins and in hard places, and we want to get better at that. Um, So, you know, there are people in our lives who you know that there are people who think that the church is just kind of this like hotbed of judgment and shame and, um, you know, negativity and not accepting and harsh. And we just want to, we want to change that. We want to make the church into a family, into a place where, um, people belong and people can feel like they belong and feel free to confess our sins to each other where we know we'll, we'll find healing instead of judgment and we'll find compassion instead of shame. Um, So I started this series because my hope is really that these stories will inspire the church to throw open our doors in our arms and just truly be a light in this world in a practical way that so desperately needs healing and so desperately needs Jesus. I mean, we know that we're all sinners. We know we need to extend the hope that we have to others in hard places because we have been to our own hard places. And sometimes I think we forget Um, you know, what it feels like to be there. And also, you know, when you're, it doesn't go away when you, when you meet Jesus. I mean, really like we have forgiveness and we have salvation, but we also, you know, we still deal with stuff and, um, you know, we really want the church to become a community that takes care of one another well and, and shares each other's burdens. And it's also a healing place to bring unbelievers into as well. So that's kind of the point of the, you can sit with us series. It's like, Hey, you know, the church should be a presence in the world where if there's somebody who's the odd person out, who's dealing with something that, um, seems, you know, to be in the margins of society instead of in the middle, if that makes sense, that we would be the kid standing up from the lunch table saying, hey, you can sit with us. Um, You know, everybody's welcome. So today I have a friend with me who has kindly agreed to share her story with you. I'm so excited. Uh, Her story deals with addiction and how that has played out among church people and in her life. So Dana Bowman is the award-winning author of Bottled, A Mom's Guide to Early Recovery. That's available on Amazon. And she is a wife, a mom, a teacher, a runner. She's a writer and speaker. She's working on her second book, uh, which I believe comes out this fall. So in other words, she has a ton of free time to talk to us, right? (laughs) Um, No, I'm actually really grateful that she was able to fit us in because she is super busy. Um, She also writes the Momsy blog, and um, she is super funny. (laughs) She has a gift for being able to talk about hard things with humor and really kind of draw you into her story. And I think, honestly, a lot of you will see yourself in her. Um, She is really like, you know, when we talk about addiction, she talks about this in, in our conversation, which is funny. When we hear about addiction, we think of like the person on the street who's like, you know, passed out. Um, from, you know, doing drugs or whatever, but she really, Dana is really like the mom that you sit next to at church. She's the mom that you pull up behind in the car line to pick up your kids. I mean, she's really just like, you know, your friends who, you know, have, have small kids and she also happens to deal with alcoholism. So I think that her story is really powerful and I'm really excited for you to hear from Dana. Um, there is a lot of hope in her story, and there is also some great feedback for those of us who want to be better at loving people who deal with addiction. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to let you hear from Dana. I'm so excited for you to hear her story and um, and really learn from her how we can be uh, better welcoming to those who come to us who struggle with addiction. All right, so without further ado, here is my conversation with Dana. Hey, Dana. Hi. Nice to meet you in voice. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited to have you with us. Um, I was looking at all the things that you have on your plate in your life, and I was just like, well, clearly this is a woman with a ton of free time to fit us in. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Lo- I love but- doing podcasts. This is my favorite thing, though, so... Okay, great. Well, because I mean, that's an inside joke. The listeners won't know, but it's like, it's the opposite of true, right? You have a ton going on. So I'm really excited that you're here with us. Ah. Um, so I sh- let's just jump in. I mean, okay. I just want to, um, 
I would love for you to tell us kind of a brief overview of your story um, just with uh, addiction and what was, so what was like the nature of your addiction? How, what did the process of becoming addicted look like for you? And just kind of give us a, um, give us, give us your starting point and your perspective and where you're coming from. Sure. Um, All right. Well, I grew up um, I'm, I promise I'm not going to tell you like my whole sordid life story. I will keep it, <laughs> I'll try to keep it in a nutshell, but I grew up in a home with a, with a father who was in recovery. So my dad's been in recovery um, for as long as I've been alive. And um, so that kind of started, <laughs> I guess, the tipping point for me. The odds were not so much in my favor because of that. Um, but I always do say that at the beginning, just to make sure and establish that we understand um, the statistics about children of alcoholics and that a lot of times those children do go on to become alcoholics themselves. And as much as I fought that statistic and told my dad firmly that that would never happen to me and I was way too smart for that, um, the numbers show that 50% of all children of alcoholics will become alcoholics themselves and we have four kids in our family and two of the four have addiction issues so Mm -hmm. all worked out so sort of irritating to myself at the time but um I didn't have any major actual like it it, it, in my book I, I wrote a book called bottled and it talks about my um drinking history I guess and there's a chapter in there called I never danced on tables which is sort of me sarcastically whining about the fact that my drinking days in my 20s and even college in my 20s and 30s was not crazy like I wasn't (laughs) dancing on tables I wasn't going partying out at the bars I I didn't go to Vegas and forget going to Vegas you know like none of Mm -hmm. that happened for me um I did love to drink and I always felt weird about that um I really did and it was partially my father's advice and warnings but it was also I think um from the beginning God just poking at me and saying your drinking is not to quote enjoy a glass of wine it is not to quote enjoy social time with your friends it is for another reason and Mm. um it was always about the end result it was always about how it made me feel it was never about um just going and having a nice drink and sitting and talking and and or even the taste of it I you know all that hoo-ha where people are talking about wine tastings and stuff I always tried to pretend that I really was into the taste of it and blah 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 but really it was just all about the end result and so even in my 30s um there, the slow, the, for me, it was a slow burn. It really was. I was kind of a crock pot cooker in terms of my addiction because um, I found myself drinking alone more in my 30s, mainly because I was still single and depressed <laughs> and um, thought I was going to be married by then, and I wasn't. And, um, and there were little tiny red flags popping up here and there, slowly, 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 but nothing crazy, nothing, you know, no getting arrested. Um, very manageable, very, very sophisticated. I was a martini drinker. I, you know, I really did not, um, have what some people would say alcoholic, um, I guess red flags firing all over the place until I had children and then all bets were off. It was like those poor little babies just sort of took this cork that had been, I mean, and pardon the pun, but it's true. Like I had just been bottled up for so long. And then in my perfect little world that I had managed so tidily, um, babies came along and blew that out of the water. They do. And my perfect little world became a crumbled mess of isolation, postpartum depression. Um, and then, you know, just the, 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 the whole drones of being a mom at home with two little babies under eighteen months old and, it just, um, my drinking really went off the charts right around the time that my babies um, had been born and or, or were in their first year or so. Okay. So is that kind of what made you realize, oh gosh, this might be a problem? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. And I really had until then, I even, I, I remember clearly very much so in my 20s, my roommate coming home and finding me drinking wine and watching a TV show. Um, and she even saying in my twenties to me, Dana, why are you drinking by yourself? Like that's, 
that's not healthy. That's not okay. And I got really offended and just totally ticked off at her for that statement. Um, Mm. But, and then, you know, and then fast forward another, oh my gosh, it was almost 20 years past that when I finally said, oh, holy cow, she was right. Why didn't I listen to her back then? Um, (laughs) But um, in my 30s and when I got married to my husband, I was 36, which is, you know, is like nearly dead in, in married world. And, and that first year um, together was the red flags were really firing all over the place because marriage is hard. Any, anytime I came face to face with something difficult in my life, I just decided to conquer it and fix it. Well, when you have other humans added to your existence, that doesn't get so easy anymore. I mean, you can't fix them or conquer them. They're humans. They do their own thing. And so first I had a husband and that was first year of marriage was kind of tough. And so we were drinking more and more and um, partying and I was, but also bad things like fighting and finding ourselves getting into situations where I'm like, this isn't right or normal. And then since we were older, um, we proceeded to have children like right away. <laughs> and, um, and that was about the time I, I, I tell this story often and it's in the, it's in my book too, where I mentioned like we're upstairs in the playroom and I'm watching my children play and play with their trains. And they're just so in the moment and they're so glad mommy's there. And mommy is sitting in a lump on the couch, just in despair. And I, and I could remember thinking that horrifying thought, finally horrifying thought came to me. Oh my sweet Lord. I can't, I literally can't stop. Like I had been trying to stop and manage and slow down and temper it forever. And I finally came to a place where I realized I, I can't manage this. I can't stop. I, and I can't keep drinking because if I keep drinking, I'm going to die. And that was a, that was nails on the records, you know, the, or the needle on the record screeching where you just go, Oh, what am I going to mm-hmm. do? You know? Yeah. Um, I just want to go back for one second to when you said uh, 36 is like dead in marriage <laughs> years. Yeah. Because I I was like covering my la- my laughter for that because, okay, so I'm turning 30 this year and I've been with my boyfriend for five and a half years and girl, I feel that so hard. <sighs> there is just so much like, I'm just like, when are you, when is this happening? Chop, when chop, little onion. Like, like are we doing this or what? <laughs> You're not married until you're married, and as a Christian, you have to be married. Yeah, I know. I exactly. Right. I totally get it. So it's such a mess. We're such a mess in the church here. But oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so married off as soon as possible. I'm like, oh my, yeah, God. right. Life doesn't start till you get some of those kids <laughs> up in there. You know, save <laughs> the world. Okay, um, so go ahead. So did you? So okay, um, did you reach out for help? to like loved ones um when you were going through this so once you realized oh my gosh this is an issue what what was your reaction what was your feeling about it what did you do yeah I had to I kind of grimaced at that question because there was two levels here okay so there was the there was the five or so years prior when you know I got married and then for I guess it was more like three years where I had my first year being married without kids and then kids came along so for about those first three years I was a stewing mess of I do not have a problem but maybe I have a problem but I'm not <laughs> tell anybody because I am way smarter than this and so I spent those first three years reading books um just trying to get my own crap together I because I was such a perfectionist and I I really just figured this sounds really sarcastic, but that's my love language. So here we go. Um, <laughs> I figured if I can be, if I can, I can just manage this too. I'm going to manage my alcoholism just like I've managed everything else. Because I did finally come to a realization that I was an alcoholic. And, and like I said, that realization upstairs in the train room, it was a whole more, another year after that before I quit. Um, so I, I really just decided, well, gosh, darn it. I have fixed everything else in my life. Um, I just, I, I decided I wasn't going to quit drinking because holy cow, there's no way I could imagine my world without drinking. And I can explain that too, if that doesn't make sense. Um, some people will get it. Some people won't, but I just figured I would manage it. Now that means I did not reach out. I didn't tell. In fact, I became even more secretive. 
Um, mm-hmm. I started doing really stupid stuff like hiding alcohol in, in my house. And my husband, though, now that we talk later, he's like, I knew. I totally knew. And and then we would have these huge fights about it occasionally. And he would try to get the alcohol out of the house. And then I would just go find it again. But I don't have a problem, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and But then, okay, so that was level one. Level one was totally don't tell anyone completely up your game in terms of hiding it and really try to put on your perfectionistic exterior and look like super mom to cover for yourself. So it's like all compensating all the time, overcompensating to the point of exhaustion. Mm. Well, when you do that, eventually you either end up hospitalized from a, you know, severe anxiety or, you know, whatever. Because my drinking, of course, went off the charts then. It's it's a lovely circle, circular pattern. The more stressed out you get, the more you drink, and then the more stressed out you get about drinking, and then you drink more. So it just keeps continuing. So then about a year later, I finally broached the topic, but I broached it to a friend that I felt was safe in the sense that she had seen hard times and she had dealt with addiction. And so I felt safe talking to her. I didn't even ask my husband for help until um, probably another two or three months after that. And then finally I was able to talk to him about it. Um, But it took me a very long time before I felt like I could talk to anyone in the church and and my initial friend that I did speak to, I felt like I could talk to her because she would, you know, kind of get it. But I still felt like, and I still kind of do, and we probably are you know, talking about this, um, the church does, did not, like my friend, I had tons of friends in my church. I was a huge churchgoer, which was really, you know, shocking to a lot of them later. Um, I really couldn't, I could not address it with them at all. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it was just kind of like a fear of their reaction or was it, had you seen, um, you know, your church family react in a negative way to others who maybe confess something like that? Or was it just your own like crushing fear? Yeah. I I hadn't really seen them react in any way to anybody else with anything like this because it just had never happened before. And I think my church, especially, I kind of joke that I'm like the token alcoholic. Like I'm, I'm the one (laughs) The one alcoholic in the whole church, right? And um, it's really hilarious now because every single time any one of them has any sort of problem with any sort of addiction in their family, they're like, let's call Dana. (laughs) She's the (laughs) one that will ask because she's the only one. Um, But I really felt like they, you know, it was a deer in the headlights reaction. They would just kind of stare and blink like they just really didn't even know what to say. And the main thing that I was needing at that time or felt like I was a needy mess, right? When you when you first finally admit this vulnerability to someone and you lay your crap at their feet, you don't want them to just stare at you blinking. Like, that's not what you need at the time. And, and they didn't even know how to provide help, assistance, or succor. And I get it because it's not necessarily their job. It wasn't. And it isn't their job to fix me. I guess. But the main thing I was worried about was just, um, I, I didn't think they would like look at me and go unclean and, you know, <laughs> away. But I, I knew they wouldn't do that. I didn't expect them to like kick me out of the church or anything like that. I, but what I did dread and what kind of did kind of happen was just this total lonely disconnect. And And see, the thing is, my church and the people in my church and my faith is the one thing in my life that I feel the most linked to and connected and close. You know, these people, I mean, this is my life, my faith, my journey with Jesus. It's all I have. Right. You look at the people that you love and that love Jesus too. And then they look at you and there's a big thing in your life that they totally don't get at all. And it's a huge part of who you are. It is lonely as heck. It's like it's like looking at your husband and finding out something that you didn't. I, I don't know how to give the analogy really well without it sounding really over the top, but like, like, like he's been communicating with someone else via emails with a female or something, and you're like, what? Like, it, it, it's just such a disconnect, and you feel so lonely and alone and out by yourself when you didn't think that was the case. And that's, and that's how it still feels sometimes with the, with my, my friends at their church, unfortunately. Yeah. So. 
Oh, man. Yeah, that's so hard. And that's, you know, it's kind of like the people that you trust the most. Exactly. That's it. That's what I want. Yeah. You just summed it up for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so. it does, it does, you know, it can hurt when, you know, we go to the people that we, you know, that we trust the most and we kind of, you know, hand this, this, um, scary tender thing to them and you know maybe it's not out of malice that they react kind of kind of weird but they just don't know what to say and then it ends up you know we might even regret like oh man why did I tell them but it you know but we need to tell people about things (laughs) yeah I mean as part of my job I have no choice like probably about a year after recovery was when I sort of came out to my church because they started writing about it and I decided that that would be my way to sort of slowly introduce myself as the token alcoholic to the group. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's just been a process. And I say all this, I'm not meaning to bash on my church and because I'm sad. I, I don't want them to listen to this and go, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. It's not necessarily their fault. It's just that um, addiction, again, is like one of those last strongholds that we really just don't talk about much. Yeah, I totally, yeah. Um, I want to talk about your friend that you went to talk to who is safe. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, what, what did that look like? Why, how did, why did you feel safe with her? And yeah. what kind of relationship had you guys built beforehand that kind of built that bridge of trust so that you could tell her that? Well, part of it was that we um, had just spent a lot of time together. We were both moms, we both had kids that were the same age. We were always together. And we had built this friendship, but I also felt like she and I had the same sort of temperament and also outlook on faith. Um, and, and she, like I said, she had gone through some tough stuff in her own life that had to do with addiction and that had to do with, um, I guess what you would say is those repeated sins that, you know, are so hard to um, fight mm-hmm. and battle. So she did understand it. Um, because of her own life experiences and I would have to say too it was really just um, I didn't expect to tell her I think God just presented her to me because he knew that she would give me um, because I'll I'll have to tell you the whole story because she at that moment when I finally said it to her out loud to someone else she gave me the best advice that anyone else totally could and I'll never forget it because we were at the park um, we're both sitting on this bench doing the mom thing, you know, like passing out snacks as the kids would come to us every once in a while, wanting food, because that's their life work. And then, then they'd go back <laughs> and play and we're both staring out into the distance and I'm not even looking at her and I just sort of blurt it out and I say, I can't, I can't quit drinking. And she mm-hmm. knew and she nodded and this is her temperament too. She's a very stoic personality. She just nodded. And she didn't look at me and she kept staring out into the distance and she said, well, you're, you know what you need to do. And I didn't say anything. And she said, you need to start going to meetings. And I just hated her. I was like, hate it. <laughs> like, and, but that's why I think I told her because she's one of those people that just says the truth. It's the straight dope with her. And she doesn't cut corners and she doesn't go, oh, honey, oh, let me pray for you. Oh, you know it you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm so sorry and here's a book and <laughs> it was like you need to get your crap together girl and this is what you need to do because for me attending meetings or getting out into the recovery world was the one that was the one thing that I held and she she didn't know this by the way it was the one thing that I kept saying in my head to God every time we would pray about it I would say Lord I need help I realize this but please 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 don't make me go to meetings I said it over and over again to him and then I think he was like well I shall now give you your friend and she will say (laughs) what I can't you know right now say and so she said that and I kind of nodded and was like yeah I know you're right you're right and then I probably filed that away for another couple of weeks because it just uh it just took me forever to to figure it out so but no one else, yeah. I go through my list of friends now in my head and no one else would have said that to me. Everyone else would have been like, oh, oh my gosh. And what can I do? And, oh, let me give you a hug. And here's a casserole. And <laughs> <laughs> I need to do the church thing and let's form a prayer circle. And I, I love all that. And I think that's important. Um, but hard talk and truth um, in that moment was somebody saying, you're going to have to tell people. And you need to go to meetings and this isn't going to work otherwise. And so. 
Yeah. Uh, That's so powerful to just have that honest friend yeah. who's like, hey, listen, girl. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what it's like. And it's really funny now that I think about it that I told her because why? Like if I had been fighting this for that long and trying to put it off and trying to hide it, why would I tell her? Because I think God just literally sometimes makes you say it. And I just sort of blurted it out. Like, because at the same time, as much as you want to hold on to your sin, I think a lot of times us, especially us addicts, we do want to hold on to that sin and we do want to keep drinking, but we do really also want to be okay. And we want to get better. And so, and that's the Holy spirit in us. Like, if I hadn't had the Holy Spirit at that time, I probably just would have drank myself to death. And and that's and that happens. I mean, it happens with middle-aged, white, suburban women. We do drink ourselves to death. It's, it's happening all over. Like, the statistics are out there that drinking is at an epidemic level, especially with moms um, that you would never, quote, expect us to be drinkers. You expect alcoholics to be on the corner with a paper bag, right? But that's not the case. And we are drinking ourselves to death and we are harming ourselves. And so the whole, I'm kind of going off on a rabbit trail because a lot of times I get people saying like, you know, you know, you're so put together and you have good hair and (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) you have two kids. Like, how can you be an alcoholic and have kids? I'm like, as if that has anything to do with it. And as if your hair has anything to do with it. Normal. I'm like, well, you know, us alcoholics do look normal sometimes. Um, but it, right, you don't just like sprout a second yeah. head when you start drinking well, too much. I like, so like it would come out a lot of alcoholism if there was sort of some <laughs> like flashing sign. So <laughs> I, I do think God just pushed me to ask her, and then and she saved my life. And I've told her that later. Um, her words were stuck in my craw, and uh, and I just. I proceeded and then, you know, proceeded to actually get myself into meetings. It took a little longer, but I, I did it. That's great. Um, so I want to go back and talk about like, okay, so when you were wrestling with all this internally and not telling anyone and just afraid to tell anyone, and then you told your friend, um, how did, what, what did your internal feeling state look like about yourself? Like, were you feeling, um, was it like a feeling of shame that then did it change when you told someone, how did that, what did that look like? I have to say, um, okay. So it's, it was total shame. It was total shame prior and I don't even like talking about it because just remembering back to that feeling of total and utter self-loathing and despair is like, it was the most dark time of my existence. I don't know um, if anyone's ever been in that place, but, but shame, I think, is probably the worst emotion, in my opinion, to feel because it just feels so completely um, tra- entrapped. You, you are trapped in it. Um, yeah. And so when I finally did get the strength to sort of peek, you know, dig myself up above the edge of the hole and peek my eyes out and finally say a little tiny sentence and just finally get the energy to, you know, get it out there. Those words went out of me and there was a feeling, I know this sounds really goofy and kind of hippy dippy, but it was like a lightning happened, like a, a lessening and a weight a weight was slowly coming off of me. Um, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and I love to liken it to his description of, it's not Edmund, it's Edward, when Edward turns into the... Um, the dragon? Dragon, thank you. I'm so glad you read it. Eustace. Okay. I think it was Eustace, yeah, right? Eustace, sorry. It was another E. Yes. Eustace, and I can't even remember which book it was. I think it's Prince Castle. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader Girl. Love that whole series. (laughs) Yes. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader turns into the dragon, and he can't get his scales off unless he is actually going to have to claw and rake them off himself, and it's going to hurt. And so, you know, getting that. We're getting those words out there were extremely painful and difficult, but at the same time, there was a raw feeling of sort of freedom afterwards. It was a very slow process, um, and I still do feel shame and sorrow and regret 
not shame, I guess. Um, I think I've gotten past that, but I really do occasionally dip down into that, you know, despair again. And, but I do feel like Jesus was just kept trying to tell me, girl, I set you free so that you could be free. There's a verse in Galatians. It's for freedom that I set you free. Okay. And I, I go back to that again and again. It's, it's not for anything else that he set us free. It's not for riches or intelligence or looks. He set us free to be free. Okay. And that's it. And, and so I think that that, that process for me was a lifting of a lot of shame and self-loathing. So I hope that makes sense. That is so powerful. Yes, it does make sense. That is so powerful. Um, I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan too. So I I knew exactly where you were going with that. (laughs) I love it. And I think too, that, you know, even people listening who maybe can't relate to your exact, um, issue, maybe they, you know, we all have stuff that God has to strip off of us like scales. We all do. And I think that, you know, everybody can relate to, you know, the need to be transformed into who we were made to be and strip away that ugly that we have, you know, ended up packing on over the years. So, and I also wanted to speak to something you said that really struck me. You were talking about the shame and, um, I remembered something that I read somewhere. I think I had a professor in college actually who told me this, like the difference between guilt and shame Ah. and like how guilt and like conviction is, is like being sorry, like feeling sorrow over your sin, but shame is feeling sorrow over who you are. Over your existence. And And that, I have heard that and it's very true. Yes. Yeah. And so it's like, to me, that really helped me sort out too. Like it can be really complicated figuring out when you're in that, it can be really hard figuring out where are these feelings coming from? Which voices are from God? Which voices are from the enemy? And so like sorting out that like, Hey, guilt and conviction, you know, that could be, that's from the Lord, like saying, Hey, you know, you have this issue, let's fix it together. Whereas shame, you know, the sorrow over who you are, that is always from the enemy. Yeah. And, and I kind of likened it to, it was such a huge thing for me. It was just this huge ball of you are a huge ball of all this. Everything about you. I mean, that's shame. But conviction was more like we need to do something. I think it was more action related. We need to do something about this issue. And you need to do something about this problem. And let's get on this and let's work on this together. Um, But you have to get past the shame to be able to do that. And so and and to get your head out above shame is extremely difficult because, like I said, it's you can drown in it. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so tell me about when you started going to meetings and what that looked like and did your, how, how did your church know that this was going on? Did they know that you were in recovery? Um, how did they react? How did they treat you? Was it helpful, hurtful? Well, not initially they didn't know. And I think, um, let's see, like I had told my one friend and yes, she did attend that church. So she knew. And Brian knew. That's my husband. Um, and But initially, um, I pretty much just sort of went for, I think it was about for a good year, I started attending meetings um, weekly, and I tried to attend more than one meeting a week. And God bless my husband, because um, he really took on a lot, because he had to be home, and he had to watch the kids. And um, this is something that's very common amongst moms who are in addiction. We can, we can very often say, well, I can't go to meetings because I've got kids, and, and we can use that. Um, and it, and at, at the same time, I get it because, you know, it makes total sense. I mean, you need to be there for the kids, la, la, la. I get it. Um, but I was such a lousy mom at that point. Anyhow, it didn't really matter. I needed to get to meetings so I could learn to be a better mom. Um, So he did, uh, you know, the yeoman's job of getting home, making sure I was able to get out the door. Um, They were home during the day, but I did did try to go to meetings with them. Um, It stressed me out to the max to bring them along just because I was always nervous about them being noisy or disrupting. Again, my perfectionistic tendencies were like off the charts. And I can still remember some old guy coming up to me after my two toddlers had basically wreaked havoc. They usually have something. Most meetings, they'll have some little place where kids can go and play or read a book or whatever. And, and they had just kept coming in and they were being annoying. And, and he 
just looked at me and he's like, honey, it doesn't matter. As long as you're here, we don't care if you bring an elephant. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> I love that. And I didn't. And, and I could have probably, I think I did tell my pastors before um, I talked to anyone else and just kind of sat my pastors down and talked to them. And so I do believe that actually my pastor's wives, who are good friends of mine, um, did help a little bit out with that. So I'm, but I'm mainly talking childcare here. I'm not talking like, you know, how did they help me? Um, again, it did feel kind of, and, and the way I put it is I just felt very other. Does that make sense? I just felt very like, okay, Dana's going to go off yeah. and fix her thing. She's got this thing and she's going to fix it. And, you know, if you got breast cancer, all the breast cancer women would be, you know, coming up to you and talking to you. And if you had, a car accident, people would be showing up and telling you about their car accident. But in this case, it was really weird. And most of the time, I didn't even want to want to talk to people because I just felt like explaining it and or trying to bridge that gap was too lonely. Um, so finally, about a year in, yes, I did. And, and I really did it, did it in a really um, a cowardly way. Um, which was also kind of funny. My, I write for a really great publication called um, The Covenant Companion, and um, my sweet editor set it up for me to write about basically being an addict in the church. And um, it's a great article. It's called Take This Cup For Me. I really loved writing it. It was really good, blah, blah, blah. Come to find out, they decide to use my picture as their cover art and not only that they make my picture the size of the page like it's gigantic there's just no way you cannot turn to this article and be like whoa that's Dana Bowman I know her <laughs> and everybody in my church reads that magazine so oh my gosh find out, I had thought I would write the article and then it would just say by Dana Bowman and then it would have some you know some other kind of graphic slash header Nope, I'm on their big old face, and um, that was my way of telling everyone. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I don't think that's cowardly at all. I think that's super brave. But, Here's my face, and <laughs> but it did end up being kind of doofy because then people would come up to me like, "Yay, congrats!" Because the article did really well, and it and it got awards and blah blah blah. And then people would be like, "Dana, good job on." good job on writing that article and then you could see them being like how do I tell her good job on being an alcoholic like I don't know no you you go you alcoholic you good job you you ex-drinker and um so it was kind of weird slash funny at the same time I love that I love that you you are really good at making uh taking these hard things and finding the humor in them and I think that that's really powerful I think that that's a really good life skill yes, to have. Yes, it is. Because what else is there? If we can't laugh, then yeah. Right. So that brings me to kind of my next question. So it seems like you are pretty comfortable talking about all this. Do you feel like you're kind of at peace with what has happened now? And you're, you seem like you're managing pretty well currently. Yeah, I am managing. <laughs> um, <laughs> you wrote a book about it, you know. Yeah, yeah it's kinda, it cracks me up because there's times that I'm totally flipping like I don't know if this is too much of a side you know, side story, but just recently, um, my husband had tried to um, get life insurance for me, um, and I blogged about this, so it's not it's out there. Everybody knows about it. But anyhow, I got turned down, and it got and I got turned down because of my alcoholism, because I was honest on the questionnaire, and so flipped out and I'm like I'm an author for God's sake I know what I'm doing here I'm I'm like written two books and blah 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 don't they understand and I just it just totally made me crazy and so and Brian's looking at me like yeah you really you like spot on right now Dana um <laughs> so so in recovery uh, but yeah, I mean, I feel very peaceful. I feel very um, solid in my sobriety. And I feel, you know, one day at a time, though, because as, as soon as I say that, I don't want to come across as like, and I will never drink again, because I could drink tomorrow and everything could fall apart and the wheels could come off at any minute. And so humility and surrender is a big part of this. And for those of us in recovery, we know better than to say, I'm, you know, I've got this. Okay, because I don't, I don't have it. I have it with my, my higher power has it. 
Um, and I'm giving it to him on the daily. But that being said, I speak about it. I write about it. I feel like this is kind of my work now. And I feel like God told me, um, when I wrote that article, when that article came out, it was kind of this huge moment of, okay, so you're funny, God. You decided to put my face on there as big as, like, it's as big as a jack-o'-lantern. And now I need to start telling the world. I get it. And that was, that was kind of my marching orders that I got. And so I'm grateful for that, though, because I needed marching orders and I needed somebody to tell me, what do I do with this? What do I do with this whole crap basket that I got? I'm sorry. I am a Christian, but I say crap a lot. Um, crap basket. Crap I think basket. that's my new favorite. I'm going to use that. That's Just, you know, we, Jesus we all have a, though. we all have a crap basket. We, we all, do. we all do. We, have we all do. Basket that we carry around. And then, you know, what do I do with this? And the, you know, these are the cards I've been dealt, but I, but I'm trying to do something with it. I want it to have a purpose and a plan because God tells me that everything is for a purpose. So what do I do with this? And that's that's part of why the book exists. That's part of why the next book exists, um, because I'm trying to, like, turn it into um, a way to help, especially moms, especially moms in the church who were struggling or are struggling like I am or was. Yeah. Um, wow, that's awesome. Um, let's, I want to blow it up even bigger right now. I want to talk about like big picture and, and other addicts and how, you know, what you think about the church at large with this question. So, um, my question is, how do you think the church and just Christians in general view addicted people and maybe even how have you felt like they've viewed you? Um, do you feel like it's a positive view? Do you feel like it's a negative view? Do you feel like they just don't know what to say and what to do? Yeah, I do feel like and I better tread lightly here because I don't want to I don't want to make anybody feel mad or sad. But, but this is just the impression that I got. One of the impressions that I received was what I've already stated, which is that's your thing, Dana. And God bless you for for coming forth. But it's your thing. And good luck with that. <laughs> and we'll pray for you. Mm-hmm. And that's OK. Um I really do. I have a very dear friend who's with me in my church and we are, we are there in the trenches every day with being moms and she has no clue about addiction. And I almost have to like laugh and smile at her and go, you sweet thing. Um, you, you know, God bless you. (laughs) Um, I almost regard her in the same way that she regards me. We're both like, yeah, you go with that. That's, that's your thing. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, I feel like there's another level here that um, could be dealt with and changed. I really do feel like Satan has a stronghold on addiction right now in our world, in, in general, not even just with Christians, but everybody. I think addiction is a really huge um, tipping point for Satan right now, and, and he loves it. He loves addiction. Um, there's a lot of reasons why shame is one of the biggest ones. It really works with the shame cycle thing. And, and he loves that kind of stuff. Um, and it has to do with identity and, and the whole, like the whole LGBTQ thing goes along with this. Cause it's all about identity and Satan just loves it. He loves it. So, well, we're the church for Pete's sake. We're supposed to be dealing with Satan on the regular, right? So why are we not? I mean, I know we have celebrate recovery, and that's great. I think that's like the only Christian recovery program that I know of. But why are we not talking about it in the church? Why are we not having sermons about it? Why are we not seeing it in Sunday school classes? Um, why are, you know, I, I guess I feel like, why are we not providing missionary opportunities? I don't even know what that would look like per se, but in in my church or in my world, I'm not seeing very much of that. And that, again, is not because um, they don't want to. I think it's just simply because they don't even know where to start or know how. And, again, yeah. that's why I'm the one that gets the phone calls. Like, wait, we know Dana. <laughs> What's right. her? And a lot of times I don't know the answers. Like, they'll call me up and ask me stuff. I'm like, I really don't know. Like, where do we go with this? Is there a Christian foundation for addiction i don't even think so should i start one probably i don't know i mean i just i just feel like it's just not out there very much and i'm sure there are and i'm sure there is and then maybe when we publish this they'll all contact you and you and be like yes we are we're here 
um, it is very small, and it is. But we're here. The statistics say that there are addicts in our church. We are, we are in the church. It's not just me. I'm not the only one. And um, I feel like uh, that is something that could be dealt with. Very yeah, much. you're definitely not the only one. Oh gosh. No. Um, and dealt with now. Like we gotta stop saying, well, yeah, you're right. We should talk about that. Well, let's talk about it now. Because it's not going away. And it's not yeah. going to be better. So. Yeah. And I think too that, you know, you mentioned Celebrate Recovery and that is an amazing ministry. But again, it's kind of one of those things where um usually in my experience, that's only in like really big churches who have like, you know, a lot of support for you know, and who have like a lot of extra ministries. Yes. I say extra. Cause you know what I mean? Like usually the churches that have celebrate recovery are like the ones that also have a car repair ministry and like <laughs> things that, you know, like little churches might not have. Right. Um, and it's kind of like that, like, usually it's, it's kind of that tucked away in the corner, little ministry that like, Oh, if you need that, that's, you know, over there for there's you, but we don't pamphlet. really talk about it. Yeah. There's some pamphlet on a desk, like here, go over yeah. here and here's a pamphlet. Um, that's dusty because no one's touched it. And I, I understand. I mean, I get it that, that it isn't something that people are going to come bobbing in and going, Hey, I'm an alcoholic. I need help. That that's true. But I don't know. I, I just feel like it, we are, we are not other anymore. No. And that's, that's the thing too, is that like, you know, what would it, what would it look like if our churches were places where, you know, we felt like, like your friend who was safe, like, what would it look like if our churches were safe? And if we felt like this is not something that's only me, this is something that is, you know, my, my neighbor in the pew next to me and the, you know, the person, uh, you know, there's like at least 20 of us in the sanctuary or probably more, you know, and like, it might have felt a little bit easier to talk about it if it was already being talked about, you know what I mean? Well, and I do, I do feel this, and I totally get this. I feel also that addiction is not, it is kind of pointed out as it's the big, it's the big A, alcohol, it's the big N, narcotics. Um, those things are very easy to see, to spot. Um, you know, mine involves a substance. So what if your addiction isn't a substance? What if you're addicted to shopping? Or what if you're addicted to comparing yourself? And, and I know this argument's been used before, and you said it earlier. We all are addicted to something. But what I think happens is there's, a, you, there's kind of a universal sigh that happens with Christians where they're like, well, but mine's not that bad, you know? And yeah. I get it. Shopping isn't going to kill you. But isn't there something in the Bible that talks about a sin is a sin is a sin? Mm-hmm. And to address it, like, with everybody. What do we lean on when we when we need that idle moment, when we need that idol to help us, quote, feel good or get through the day or um, feel better about ourselves, what are we, you know, are we stuffing our face? Are we um, exercising too much on the flip side? You know, there's every, there is stuff out there that needs to be dealt with. And, and I know, in, in fact, that my church has had, like I said, Sunday schools and Bible studies about, you know, issues like that. Um, but it would be kind of interesting to see them maybe take that conversation larger and then, and then address it. Cause I think what I'm trying to say is I think people get kind of offended and or freaked out when I say, look, my alcoholism is the same as your blank. And mm-hmm. that really mess- messes with people's heads. And maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like it's the same kind of, you know, like, I, I don't know. I, I could be, overstepping my bounds because mine was a physical addiction at, at one point it wasn't initially but it, yes it did become a chemical slash physical addiction um so I could be going too far and I don't want to offend and or um be wrong but I have felt like that would be a way to broach the conversation but it, yeah it kind of ruffles feathers I think I don't know I mean, I don't, I think that that's a really good idea. I think that it's true that we all have stuff that we struggle with, even if we don't call it an addiction, you know, we all have things that have those same kind of characteristics, I guess. So like shopping is a great one because we don't really think of that as, as bad, you know, as if a friend confessed to us, Hey, I've been doing Coke, um, on the regular, uh, you know, or if another friend like, confessed oh to us, Hey, I've been, yeah. I suppose yeah. shopping on Amazon for shoes. I know. Right. And I get right. it. I mean, that's, that's true. There, there is a physical component that, 
that we have garnered and I and I don't want to make it sound like I'm not trying to actually make it sound like my addiction is less serious than yours because it I don't know. I, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying alcoholism is equal with shoe shopping because that sounds kind of blithe. But at the same time, I really do want people to start looking at addiction differently, I guess. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's really important to take that shame cloak off of it and just say, look, listen, just because it's a substance, I mean, everybody struggles with something and there's help and there's hope and, yeah, you know, it doesn't mean you're worse than everyone else because that's, that's kind of one thing that I'm really um, excited about with this series and kind of the whole point of doing this, the You Can Sit With Us series on Everyday Grace is because we, the church, unfortunately, has had um, a little bit of a tendency sin as worse than others and in that we have alienated people who need Jesus like the rest of us do you know and um that's that's the biggest thing is like hey you know Jesus doesn't point to the alcoholic or you know the drug addict or the gay person or whoever and say oh not you you know you're you're worse you're not included um and we should not do that either And, you know, I don't think that a lot of Christians, I don't think we would actually point with our finger and say that, but it's our behavior, you know, and like the little ways that we, you know, you said you felt other and like, that's, that's exactly what, you know, what I want to tackle in this. Uh So I'm so glad that you shared that because that's like a big deal, I think, for a lot of people at the church. Yeah. And I would have to say too, for my church now, um, I don't feel so other. I do feel awkward sometimes, and it is a little funky to talk about it, um, especially if you have some sweet little old lady from your church coming up, and, and <laughs> she asked me about my book, and then I'm like, okay, where we go? <laughs> um, but it is, it is pretty much at this point now, I feel like they've really worked with me, and they have really worked on the conversations with me, and my pastors especially, I really have to give it to them, because even at one point, my one of um, our pastors was like, Dana, I don't know what to tell you in this arena. I have no clue when it comes to addiction. He admitted that to me, which is great because that was a great, it almost gave me clearance to be able to say, oh, good, because I don't either. So let's let's see what we can do here. And we have continued yeah. to talk. We keep every semester with the S- Sunday school and stuff like that. We continue talking about possibly doing something to address it or you know sort of batten the ball around that kind of thing yeah so um that kind of leads me to my next question which is what what's something that you wish people knew about struggling with addiction that they kind of don't seem to understand um and also kind of what do you what do you wish kind of in the same line what do you wish that your church had said or done you know like what what would be the ideal response so you know we have a lot of people who maybe don't know how to respond so I just threw like four questions at you so pick one (laughs) (laughs) um okay well I would say I wish like I said before, I kind of wish when I initially was able to talk to my church about it, I almost felt like I, I wish somebody had been able to come up and say me too. And I never got that. And that's okay. Cause maybe I really, you know, maybe I am really wrong and my church is not, does not have anyone else. That's fine. But I doubt it church. <laughs> I'm looking at you. <laughs> um, but at any rate, um, there's really nothing that, in, in the sense of how they reacted to me that they did that was really untoward or just, un, you know, awful. Um, but there really was at times just this feeling of loneliness that I, I really did um, wish had not been the case, you know? And so to remedy that, uh, this is such a, it, you know, this is why this is a tough topic is because there isn't an easy fix Um, there isn't, there isn't like an immediate, let's set this curriculum up, you know, like I'm not sure, but I would have to say one of the best ways to do it would be to start talking about it in our sermons, you know, in a sermon series and maybe attaching to it some sort of a book and or, um, Sunday school quorum forum, something, um, and I think one of the main arguments would be from from the side of the person in recovery is that um, the numbers show that we're here and that we're here right now in this building and no one's willing to say it or fess up. I get that. But at the same time, we are here. So let's go ahead and begin and, and be ready because it's going to happen in your family. It's going to happen with your sons and daughters. It's going to happen with 
maybe your grandkids or somebody's niece or nephew, it's going to happen. Addiction is out there. Um, So let's start just by teaching about it and talking about it and writing about it and getting, you know, getting information out there and seeing what we can do with that. And then I also, I really, and this is a total like dream. I just really wish there was more conferences, more speaking, more like, I just don't see it. I see so many mom conferences for Christian moms. Oh my gosh. They're everywhere, you know, and the the pictures are always the same. These cute moms with felt hats and skinny jeans are standing around drinking coffee <laughs> and there's another conference for them and they are going all going to go conference and talk about being a mom. Great. Good. Yep. Drink your coffee and go do that. But where are the conferences for the Christians who are in in recovery? I just don't see them. Yeah. Cuz I Yeah, and I think it one. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I wish I Yeah. Right. And maybe you should start one. I mean, I just throwing that out I there. Scary, huh? <laughs> I think too, what you said about pastors, something, something kind of like piqued my interest in there. Cause you were talking about, it needs to be addressed from the pulpit. It needs to be in sermons. I was thinking about that too, how your pastor told you that like, Hey, I don't really know much about addiction. I'm so glad he was honest with you about that. But yeah. as pastors and as, you know, Christian leaders, I think that, you know, it's kind of their job to know how to take care of different groups of people and like I would love to see more I mean even in maybe in seminary they need to have like a you know specifically address it in like a course like you know here's how to take care of people who struggle with this because the numbers are there and this is a thing that people deal with um you know that needs to be part of pastoral care is knowing hey you know this is gonna happen and and maybe that would make people feel a little bit less like oh it's just me (laughs) you know you've never seen this before huh they have have like how to take care of the dying and the bereaved and and this thing that's really common and prevalent it seems now i yeah i think that's a great idea And I wanted to talk about something else you said, because you were talking about like, maybe I'm the only one. And I don't think that you are, but I think that maybe you will give other people kind of the gift of going first, Yeah, you know, because you, you are going first in a lot of your circles, maybe. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, brave is contagious, right? And so, you know, you're brave will make other people brave. And I, you know, I wonder if even listening to this, uh, you know, there might be a listener who is struggling with, oh, gosh, you know, I feel so alone. I feel like I have no one that I can talk to about this. I don't know anyone else who struggle with addiction. And then maybe they hear your story and they might say, okay, I'm going to be brave with this one friend, you know, this one person that I trust. Yeah. So that's, that's my hope. You know, and I think that's why, like, I think that's the disconnect. Because here's the big, huge kick killer question how can you be an addict and and also be a christian like that i think was the huge question mark that kept hanging over people's heads when i would tell them like what like how but how can you be an addict and also be a christian at the same time and you know what i can't theologically and spiritually answer that question without telling I, I, it would take me hours to just try and elucidate. We just screw up. We, we, we're human, even with Christ in us, even with the Holy Spirit. But I think that's why Christians have such a hard time coming forward with this. It is mm-hmm. so hard. I mean, and, and that's why, like, this is a totally different addic- addiction. But pornography in the church, I think that's why it is so off the charts, because they're so stressed out about the fact that it's such a horrible addiction anyhow. I mean, it is just yucky on all fronts, right? And then you mm-hmm. feel that shame and sickness about being addicted to such a, an awful thing. But then that just makes the, the tendency to go to that thing to feel better, you know, more. It's a horrible cycle. And so for me, I feel like Christians who are addicts, I don't know how to put this, in some ways have it tougher than like the plain old atheist slash agnostic because he doesn't have this baggage that he's carrying around with you know a cross attached to it because most of the time when I came forward and talked about being an addict in the church I felt like there was this like how can you be an addict but you know you have the Holy Spirit aren't you just supposed to be able to be clean because of that I'm like well no we sin (laughs) you know so Right. I just want to look at that person and be like, okay, so you've never sinned before. This is new for you, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so then there's the levels thing again. I'm like, ah, I can't even explain it. It just goes on too long. Yeah. But yeah, it's a mess. I totally get it. We're all a mess. I mean, that's really just the truth. We're all a mess. We're all a hot mess. Jesus loves us anyway. That'll be my 
my next book. I am a mess. <laughs> yeah, hot mess. But Jesus loves us anyway. And that's how we get through. Exactly. Um, so, okay, you've already given us some of this kind of feedback for the church, but just, you know, for the person listening who's wondering, okay, I'm part of a church, you know, nobody's really, like, confessed their addiction to me, but, like, if they did, what should I say? church do better in general at welcoming folks who have struggled or currently struggle with addiction um who also have this hunger for god i mean how do we how how can we welcome them okay well the first thing i'm going to do is i would suggest that um the pastors or anyone who would be in that position get caught up on some reading and the only other authors that i know that i would well there's more but i would suggest seth haynes and, um, oh gosh, Heather Kopp. These are two authors that are Christians that are also in recovery, as well as myself. Um, my book wasn't necessarily a, quote, Christian book. It was more of just for all moms in general. Um, but I feel like they should get, you know, they need to get in their lexicon some understanding of what the addict looks like who's actually coming and sitting in the pews, okay? And then in, along, t- along with that, and this is really out there, I really do suggest that um, people who are in the church who would be ministering to these people need to go to what is called an open meeting in a 12-step setting or to a Celebrate Recovery meeting. Um, I don't know if Celebrate Recovery would allow that. It depends if their meetings are open. Um, They might not be, so they'd have to check. But an open meeting in a 12-step setting is a meeting where someone can sit and listen, and they don't have to be in recovery to do that. And that's, I think that would be probably the most mind-blowing slash helpful slash tragic, um, but also hopeful thing for that pastor to do. And I, I really wish, in many ways, I think everybody in their entire existence in this whole world, everyone should go to a 12-step meeting at least once in their lifetime to get what it means to be an addict and to get also to see what it means to be sitting there and going, oh, I do that too. You know, I do. I'm human, too. And I think that would be just awesome. Um, But also and then the the third thing would be um, just work on the deer in the headlights appearance and instead give, you know, give a hug, give I, you know, give do what my pastor did, at least and say, Dana, I don't understand it, but I love you. I know he said that He, he literally said, I don't get this, but I love you. And mm-hmm. I start praying for you. And and it wasn't one of those, I'll pray for you, pray for yous. It was a real, I'm going to be praying for you. And I, I feel like he, he wanted to continue the conversation. It wasn't like one of those things where you tell somebody something really horrific and awful. And then for the rest of your lives, when you see each other in the hallway, you kind of look down like, hi, you know, oops, <laughs> shared that with you. <laughs> And then now I don't, you know, it's like when you see your ex-boyfriend again and you don't talk anymore and it's just weird. That's not what it was like. It was like to look at me and go, I want to continue this relationship with you. I'm going to keep talking to you. I'm going to look you in the eye. I am not going to feel weird. And we are going to get through this. And that is so awesome. Yeah. I'm yeah. so glad that you had that. Um, that is so funny to me. The ex-boyfriend in the hallway, like, just let's just avoid each other. Let's just not make eye contact. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm so excited for people to hear your story and, um, you know, all of your really great feedback. Um, so I'm really thankful that you were able to join us today and kind of to wrap up. I do. I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about your book and where people can find you on the web sure. um, to hear more from you and connect with you. Okay. Um, well, first of all, you can find my book on Amazon or on Borders or pretty much any other uh, facility in which you would order a book. It's called Bottled, A Mom's Guide to Early Recovery. It's by Dana Bowman. That's me. <laughs> I also have a blog, which is called Momsy Blog, M-O-M-S-I-E Blog. Um, I'm also on Twitter with the same handle and Facebook and all of those wonderful social media things, Instagram, which I still don't really understand, but I try um (laughs) you have a new book coming out in august and it will be called or is called how to be perfect like me and it's basically a carrying on of the bottled story which was about my um foray and into the depths of alcoholism and how i kind of 
started to climb my way out and I'm still doing so today, one day at a time. That's wonderful. I'm really excited for people to connect with you more and you'll probably get a ton of comments now from people who are like, Hey, help. I don't know. There's no one in my church. We're not talking about addiction. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) What's happening here? (laughs) Okay. Yes. I'm happy to help. And I love emails and I love, um, I want to be able to connect with people um, about this. So it always makes me happy. That's wonderful. And I hope that, you know, my biggest thing with this series is, you know, I, it's really speaking to both. It's speaking to believers and non-believers. I want people to be comfortable, um, with like, I, you know, I would love to speak to, I'm trying to speak to church people in particular and kind of tell them, Hey, you know, if we want to be welcoming to people who are in the margins, you know, here's how, here's how we can do better. And I think one of the one of the big ways to do that is by listening to stories and listening to feedback from the people who have been in the hard places um, that we might not have been in, but also to reach out with hope to people who might not know God, you know, and kind of let them know, Hey, all those things that, you know, if Christians have treated you like crap in the past, like there are others of us who are trying really hard not to do that. (laughs) We're not trying to get you and act, you know, yeah, I told, yeah. That's why yeah. I, that's why I wrote bottled. Initially I I think I got some pushback from some of my Christian friends because they're like it's not a Christian book, it's not a Christian publisher and I said no because I'm sorry but moms who are addicted to alcohol are not just Christians. <laughs> and I want to be able to right. read all of them, but at the same time I want to be able it, it kind of makes me think of Anne Lamott. I kind of want to be an Anne Lamott in the sense that she is a believer, she is a Christian, but um she reaches out everyone and she reaches out to everyone and she shows people that Jesus is not um, a labeler and Jesus is not someone who treats people as others. So that's, that was, I love her. Yeah. I do. You found like my other favorite author besides C.S. Lewis. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And I also wanted to admit, have you heard of Glennon Doyle? Have yes. you read anything of hers? Yep. Okay. Because yep. she's a former alcoholic, and I just figured, oh, my gosh, you guys would be like two peas in a pod. You could talk about so much. Yep. We have a lot in common. And so, and then I, I really do feel like at this point, the conversation just has to start happening um, with all of these people in sort of an environment where we're able to share ideas that raise eyebrows that maybe might offend and might even freak people out. But we are so divided now that um, it, it, that's not getting any better, right? So, so what yeah. do we do with that? Either we decide to just stay divided to the point where it, it just gets um, impossible to communicate about anything. Um, and we're all just banging our own drums, you know, louder and louder. Or we're going to have to start bridging gaps and talking. And it's got to start somehow. Yes. Yes, girl. Yes, that's queen. Why, that's why you're doing <laughs> this. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I'm so excited. So thank you so much for kind of showing up today and being part of this. Um, I appreciate it so much. And I'm, I'm just really excited for people to hear your story and, and uh, hopefully take your feedback to heart. And I think hopefully we'll have a few less deer in the headlights stairs yes. <laughs> going forward. So, all right, well, you have a super wonderful day and thank you for, um, for t- chatting with me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Dana.